Sometimes people asked Commander Vimes why Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs were still on the strength, such as it was, of the modern Ankh-Morpork City Watch, given that Nobby occasionally had to be held upside down and shaken to reclaim small items belonging to other people, while Fred Colon had actually cultivated the ability to walk his beat with his eyes closed and end up still snoring back at Pseudopolis Yard, sometimes with graffiti on his breastplate. To Lord Vetinari, Commander Vimes had put forward three defences. The first was that both of them had an enviable knowledge of the city and its inhabitants, official and otherwise, that rivalled Vimes's own. The second was the traditional urinary argument. It was better to have them inside pissing out than outside pissing in. It was at least easy to keep an eye on them. And not least, oh my word, not least, they were lucky. Many a crime had been solved because of the things that had fallen on them, tried to kill them, tripped one of them up, been found floating in their lunch, and in one case had tried to lay its eggs up Nobby's nose. And so it was that today, whatever god or other force it might be that regarded them as its playthings, directed their steps to the corner of Cheapside and Rhyme Street, and the fragrant emporium of Bewilderforce Gumption. The fourth gumption to run the tobacco house and snuff mill felt that his surname lacked prestige, and for some reason chose the name Bewilderforce, which did indeed become prestigious owing to the success of his tobacco enterprise, which was extremely well thought of by the gentry and others. And thereafter there was at least one Bewilderforce in every generation of the line, although girls were generally named Bewildred. Sergeant Colon and Nobby, as is the way with policemen, entered the building by the back door and were greeted by Mr. Gumption with that happy but somewhat glassy smile with which a trader greets an old acquaintance who he knows will end up getting merchandise with a discount of one hundred percent. "'Why, Fred, how nice to see you again,' he said, while awakening the mystic third eye developed by all small shopkeepers, especially those who see Nobby Nobs coming into the shop." We were patrolling in the area, Bewilderforce, and I thought I'd drop in to get my tobacco and see how you were managing with all this fuss about the tax and everything. The sergeant had to speak up to be heard above the rumbling of the snuff mill and the carts that were moving across the factory floor in a stream. Lines of women at tables were packing snuff, and here, he leaned sideways to get a better view, the cigarette production line was also a bustle. Sergeant Colon looked around. Policemen always look on the basis that there is always something to see. Of course, sometimes they may find it sensible to forget that they have seen anything, at least officially. Mr. Gumption had a new tie-pin, in which a diamond flashed. His shoes were also clearly new, bespoke if Fred Colon was any judge, and a barely noticeable sniff suggested the wearing of, let's see now, oh yes, cedar fragrance pour om from Quirm at fifteen ankh pork dollars a pop. He said, How's business doing? Is the new tax hitting you at all? Mr. Gumption's visage flew into the expression of a hard-working man sorely pressed by the machinations of politics and fate. He shook his head sadly. We're barely making ends meet, Fred. Lucky to break even at the end of the day. Oh, and a gold tooth, too, thought Sergeant Colon. I nearly missed that. Out loud, he said, I'm very sorry to hear that, Bewilderforce. I really am. Allow me to raise your profits by expending two dollars in the purchase of my usual three ounces of twist tobacco. Fred Colon proffered his wallet, and Mr. Gumption, with a scolding noise, waved it away. 
It was a ritual as old as merchants and policemen, and it allowed the world to keep on turning. He cut a length of tobacco from the coil on the marble counter, wrapped it quickly and expertly, and, as an afterthought, reached down and came up with a large cigar, which he handed to the sergeant. "'Try one of these and some smokes, Fred, just in, not local, made on the plantation for our valued customers. No, no, my pleasure, I insist,' he added, as Fred made grateful noises. "'Always nice to see the watch in here, you know that.' Actually, Mr. Gumption thought, as he watched the departing policeman, that was pretty mild. All that the Nobs creature had done was stare around. "'They must be coining it,' said Nobby Nobs as they ambled onwards. "'Did you see the staff wanted note in their window? And he was writing out a list of prices on the counter. He's lowering them. He must have a good deal going with the plantation people, that's all I can say.' Sergeant Colon sniffed the big cigar, the fattest he had ever seen, which smelled so good it was probably illegal, and he felt the tingle, the feeling that he had walked into something that was a lot bigger than it seemed, the feeling that if you pulled a thread something large would unravel. He rolled the cigar between his fingers the way he had seen connoisseurs do. In truth, Sergeant Colon was, when it came to tobacco products, something of a bottom feeder, cheapness being the overriding consideration, and the protocol of cigars was unfamiliar to a man who very much enjoyed a good length of chewing tobacco. What was the other thing he had seen posh types do? Oh, yes, you had to roll it in your fingers and hold it up to your ear. He had no idea why this had to be done, but he did it anyway, and swore, and dropped it on the ground. The track from the top of Hangman's Hill went beyond the trees and down, mostly through furze bushes and rocky outcrops, with the occasional patch of raw and useless soil, all substance eroded away. Wild land, wasteland, home to skinny rabbits, hopeless mice, the occasional concussed rat, and goblins. And there among the bushes was the entrance to a cave. A human would have to bend double to get into that fetid hole, and would be an easy target. But Vimes knew as he ducked through that he was safe. He knew that. He had suspected it out in the daylight, and down in the darkness he knew. The knowledge was almost physical as wings of darkness spread over him, and he heard the sounds of the cave, every sound. He suddenly knew the cave, all the way down to the place where water could be found, the fungus and mushroom gardens, the pathetically empty storerooms and the kitchen. These were human translations, of course. Goblins generally ate where they could and slept where they fell asleep. They had no real concept of a room with one particular purpose. He knew this now as if he had known it all his life, and he had never before been in any place that a goblin would call home. But this was the dark, and Vimes and the dark had an understanding, didn't they? At least that's what the dark thought. What Vimes thought unprosaically was, damn, here we go again. He was prodded in the small of his back, and he heard Feeney gasp. Vimes turned to a grinning goblin and said, "'Try that one more time, sunshine, and I'll give you a smack around the head, understand?' And that was what he said, and that was what he heard himself say, except that something, not exactly another voice, climbed along his words like a snake coiling itself around a tree, and both his guards dropped their weapons and bolted back into the daylight. It was instant. They didn't yelp or shout— they wanted to save their breath for running. "'Great hells, Commander Vimes, that was bloody magical,' said Feeney, as he bent to grope for the fallen axes. Vimes watched in the thick darkness as he saw the boy's hands scrabbling and, by luck, find them. "'Drop them. I said drop them right now. But we're unarmed. Don't you bloody argue with me, boy.' 
There were a couple of thumps as the axes hit the ground. Vimes breathed again. Now, we're going to see that nice senior goblin, you understand, and we walk without fear because we are the law, you understand, and the law can go everywhere in pursuit of its inquiries. The headroom increased as they walked onwards until Vimes was able to stand fully upright. Feeney, on the other hand, was having difficulties. Behind Vimes there was a chorus of thumps, scrapes, and words that dear old mums should not know about, let alone hear. Vimes had to stop and wait for the boy to catch up, stubbing his feet on easily avoidable outcrops and banging his head where the ceiling dipped briefly. "'Come on, Chief Constable!' Vimes shouted. "'A copper should have good night vision. You should eat more carrots with your bang-sung suck dog or whatever.' "'It's pitch black, sir. I can't see my hand in front of my face. Ouch!' Feeney had walked directly into Vimes. Light dawned, although not on Feeney. Vimes looked around the meandering cave. It was lit as if by daylight. There were no torches, no candles, just a pervading, moderately bright light. The light he had seen before, years ago now, in a cave, a big cave far away, and he knew what it meant. He was seeing darkness, probably better than the goblins did. The dark had become incredibly light on that day when Vimes underground had fought creatures, walking, speaking creatures, that made their home away from the light and had hatched dark plans. But Vimes had fought them, and he had won, and because of that the Coombe Valley Accord had been written and signed, and the oldest war in the world had ended in, if not peace, then a place where the seeds of peace could hopefully be planted. It was good to know that, because out of the darkness Vimes had acquired a companion. The dwarfs had one name for it, the Summoning Dark, and they had any number of explanations for what it was. A demon, a lost god, a curse, a blessing, vengeance made flesh, except that it had no flesh other than the flesh it borrowed, a law unto itself, a killer but sometimes a protector, or something that no one could find the right words for. It could travel through rock, water, air and flesh, and for all Vimes knew, through time. After all, what limits can you put on a creature made of nothing? Yes, he had met it, and when they parted, for amusement, playfulness, mischief, or simply reward, the summoning dark had put its mark on him, drifting through him and leaving that little glowing tattoo. Vimes pulled up his shirt-sleeve, and there it was, and it seemed to be brighter. Sometimes he met it in dreams, where they nodded at one another in respect, and then went their separate ways. Months, even years, might pass between meetings, and he might think it had gone for good, but its mark was on his forearm. Sometimes it itched. All in all, it was like having a nightmare on a leash. And now it was giving him sight in the darkness. But hold on, this was a goblin burrow, not a dwarf cave, and his own thoughts came right back at him with that slight overtone, as if they were a duet. Yes, but goblins steal everything, Commander. Right here and now it appeared that goblins had stolen away. The floor of the cave was covered with debris, rubbish, and things that presumably goblins thought were important, which would probably mean everything, bearing in mind they religiously collected their own snot. He could see the old goblin beckoning him to follow before disappearing. There was a door ahead of him, of goblin manufacture, as was borne out by its look of rottenness, and the fact it was hanging by one hinge, which broke when Vimes gave the door a push. Behind him Feeney said, "'What was that, please, sir? I can't see a thing!' Vimes walked across to the boy and tapped him on the shoulder, causing him to jump. "'Mr. Upshot, 
I'll take you up to the entrance so that you can go home, okay? He felt the boy shudder. No, sir, I'd rather stay with you if it's all the same to you, please. But you can't see in the dark, lad. I know, sir, I've got some string in my pocket. My granddad said a good copper should always have a piece of string. His voice was trembling. It is generally useful, yes, said Vimes, carefully picking it out of the boy's pocket. It's amazing how helpless a suspect can be with his thumbs tied together. Are you sure you wouldn't feel better up in the fresh air? Sorry, sir, but if it's all the same to you, I think the safest place to be right now is behind you, sir. You really can't see a thing, lad. Not a blessed thing, sir. It's like I've gone blind, sir. In Vimes's opinion, the young man was about to go postal, and maybe tethering him to Vimes was better than hearing him knock himself out in an attempt to flee. You're not blind, lad. It's just that all that night duty I've done, well, it looks as if I'm better than I thought at seeing in the dark. Feeney shuddered again at Vimes's touch, but together they succeeded in linking Chief Constable Upshot to Vimes with about six feet of hairy string which smelled of pig. There were no goblins behind the broken door, but a fire was smouldering fitfully, with a piece of blessedly unrecognisable meat on a spit above it. A man might think that a goblin had found a reason to leave his tea behind in a hurry, and talking of tea, there was a pot, which was to say, a rusty tin can, bubbling in the embers of the fire. Vimes sniffed at it, and was surprised that it smelt of bergamot. And somehow the idea of a goblin drinking posh tea with his pinky extended managed temporarily to overwhelm his incongruity functions. Well, it grew, didn't it? And goblins probably got thirsty, didn't they? Nothing to worry about. Although if he found a plate of delicate biscuits, he would definitely have to sit down and rest. He walked on, the light never failing, goblins never appearing. The cave complex certainly sloped downwards, and there were still signs of goblins everywhere. But of goblins themselves, no sign which in theory should be a good thing, given that generally the first sign of a goblin would be one landing on your head and trying to turn it into a bowling ball. And then there was a flash of colour in this drab subterranean landscape of greys and browns. It was a bunch of flowers, or what had been a bunch before it had been dropped. Vimes wasn't an expert on flowers, and when he bought them for Sybil, at maritably advisable intervals, he generally stuck to a bunch of roses, or its seemingly acceptable equivalent— one single orchid. He was vaguely aware of the existence of other flowers, of course, which brightened up the place to be sure, but he had never been one for the names. There were no roses here, no orchids either. These flowers had been plucked from hedgerows and meadows, and even included the scrawny plants that managed to hang on and flower in the wilderness up above. Someone had carried them. Someone had dropped them. Someone had been in a hurry. Vimes could read it in the flowers. They had fallen from somebody's open hand, so that they spread back along their path like a comet's tail. And then more than one person had trampled them underfoot, but probably not because they were chasing the aforesaid bouquet carrier, but by the look of it, because they wanted to go the way that he or she had run, and even faster than he or she did. There had been a stampede, in fact. Scared people running away. But running away from what? You, Commander Vimes, you, the Majesty of the Law, see how I help you, Commander? The familiarity of the voice annoyed him. It sounded too much like his own voice. But I'm here because they wanted me to come, he said to the cave in general. I wasn't intending to fight anybody. And in his head, his own voice told him, Oh, my little ragtag rubbish people, who do not trust and are not trusted. Tread with care, Mr. Policeman. The hated have no reason to love. Oh, the strange and secret people, last and worst, born of rubbish, hopeless, bereft of God. 
The best of luck to you, my brother, my brother in darkness. Do what you can for them, Mr. Poo-Lee-Smarn. On Vimes's wrist, the sigil of the summoning dark glowed for a moment. I'm not your brother, Vimes shouted. I'm not a killer. The words echoed around the caves, but under them Vimes thought he felt something slithering away. Could something with no body slither? God's damn the dwarfs and their subterranean folklore. Are you, uh, uh, all right, sir, came the nervous voice of Feeney behind him. Uh, you were shouting, sir. I was just cussing because I banged my head on the ceiling, lad, Vimes lied. He had to deliver reassurance quickly before Feeney got so unnerved that he might try to make a break for the exit, out of panic. You're, uh, doing very well, Chief Constable. Only I don't like the dark, sir, never have. Uh, do you think anyone will worry if I have a wee up against the wall? I should go ahead with I was you, lad. I don't think anything could make this place smell worse. Vimes heard some vague sounds behind him, and then Feeney said in a damp little voice, er, Nature has taken its course, sir. Sorry, sir. Vimes smiled to himself. Don't worry, lad. You won't be the first copper to have to wring out his socks, and you won't be the last either. I remember the first time I had to arrest a troll. Big fellow he was, very nasty character. I was a bit damp around the socks that day, and I don't mind admitting it. Think of it as a kind of baptism. Keep it jolly, he thought. Make a joke of it. Don't let him dwell on the fact that we're walking into the scene of a crime that he can't see. Funny thing, that trolley's now my best sergeant, and I've relied on him for my life quite a few times. That just goes to show that you never know, although what it is we never know, I suspect we'll never know. Vimes turned a corner, and there were the goblins. He was glad that young Feeney couldn't see them. Strictly speaking, Vimes wished he couldn't see them either. There must have been a hundred of them, many of them holding weapons. They were crude weapons, to be sure, but a flint axe hitting your head does not need a degree in physics. "'Have we got somewhere, sir?' said Feeney behind him. "'You've stopped walking.' "'They're just standing there,' Vimes thought, as if they're on parade, just watching in silence, waiting for that silence to break. "'There are a few goblins in this cave, lad, and they're watching us.' After a few seconds of silence, Feeney said, "'Could you tell me exactly what a few means, sir?' Dozens and dozens of owlish faces stared at Vimes without expression. If the silence was going to be broken by the word charge, then he and Feeney would be smears on the floor, which was pretty smeared as it was. Why did I come in here? Why did I think it was a good thing to do? Oh, well, the lad is a policeman after all, and it isn't as if he doesn't already have a clothing problem. He said, I would say there are about a hundred, lad, all heavily armed, as far as I can see, except for a couple of broken-down ones right at the front. Could be chieftains, I suppose. Beards you could keep a rabbit in, and by the look of it, may have. It looks as if they are waiting for something. There was a pause before Feeney said, It's been an education working with you, sir. Look, said Vimes, if I have to turn and run, just hang on, OK? Running is another skill a policeman sometimes needs.'